You're listening to Music Tectonics. Hey there, welcome to Music Tectonics, the podcast that goes beneath the surface of music and tech. I'm your host for today, Trister Neuer Jaeger, Chief Strategy Officer at Rock Paper Scissors, the music innovation PR firm. Today, I have the distinct pleasure of speaking with Janisha Jones, a true Renaissance woman in the music business. An expert in data and tech systems, Janisha has worked tirelessly to make the music industry a more equitable place, in particular for women of color. Through extensive research for via her Seat at the Table project, and through philanthropic and professional initiatives with major music companies, Janisha is harnessing data to start and encourage more meaningful DEI actions, ones that promote more diverse voices and a fair balance of power in our business. Janisha, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for that beautiful introduction. It really is an honor to be here. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you about all you have cooking because you have a lot going on. But first, I want to talk just a little bit about how you introduce yourself to other people. When you first meet people like at a party who may not know a lot about the music business and uh, forget metadata, how do you describe your work to someone you just met? <laughs> well, I have led a 10-year career in uh, as a data analyst, uh, specifically in the music publishing sector of the music business. Um, and as a woman of color, it makes me an, an anomaly in this space, but my mission is to change that. And so all of the initiatives that I have are surrounded um, around uh, bringing more voices, uh, diverse perspectives to the music industry. And um, as founder of Encore Music Tech Solutions, I consult and develop music software for major music companies such as Empire Publishing. Um, because of my expertise in music publishing specifically, uh, my forte has been more in the rights management um, and royalty processing systems, also building licensing trackers. Um, but I've also built entire business models and simple marketing tools. So in general, Encore uh, builds software to expand music business operations. Amazing. And you've used these extensive data chops. I mean, if you can master the data moves of music publishing, you can probably do almost anything. Um, <laughs> you've used your data expertise to create this research project, A Seat at the Table. Can you tell me a bit about what that entails and what inspired this research? Sure. Um, well, I started A Seat at the Table after uh, hosting a podcast called Pub Royalty Queen, podcast where I interview women of color about their challenges navigating a white male dominated industry. Um, and this was a way for me to not only expand my network and meet other like-minded individuals in this space, but also to just make sure that I wasn't bugging out here because I was starting to feel undervalued. Um, and like you said, having expertise in a, a very niche sector of the business, I realized that I had value, but when you're not put in a position where you can um, express that, um, it, t it tends to make you gaslight yourself. So um, I was in a position where I could um, build connections and understand that that is actually an experience that a lot of us have, a lot of women of color in this industry face. And so um, as a data analyst, I know that the music industry doesn't necessarily care about anecdotes <laughs> or people's, you know, um, 
you know, just their personal experiences. So um, I created a seat at the table, a perspective on women of color in the music industry, uh, which is the first data driven research study on intersectionality in the music business. Uh, we surveyed over 100 plus women of color music business professionals about several aspects of their careers from barriers to entry to education, career development, family dynamics and advocacy as a way to learn about their direct challenges um, and to legitimize their experiences. Um, and so there were a lot of takeaways from that survey that I think could drive um, better DEI programming and initiatives um, to create more safe spaces for more diverse groups of people. That's really exciting, and that's an incredible project to take on. Um, I'm really glad you did it. Let's talk a bit about some of the insights. I think especially in the realm of education and opportunities, you point to some really important um, data that um, aligns across many, many people's experiences. Tell me a bit more about some of those things you discovered. Sure. So, you know, about 92% of women of color graduate with an associate's degree or higher degree of education. Um, there is definitely a uh, emphasis put on higher education within the black community, especially um, because of education being used as a form of oppression in this country specifically. Um, however, 84% uh, of women of color professionals in music business actually did not attend a historically black college or university. So this is one of the key takeaways that I bring to a lot of these large organizations is that while it's well-meaning to uh, invest in music business programming in HBCUs or to just fund the HBCUs as a way to encourage um, those in the black community to aspire to be in the music industry, they actually don't serve the people that are, come, that are in the business um, to do that. Um, it, there may be like a cultural um, disconnect as well because uh, those, those who are in the black community, uh, we don't necessarily send our children to school or HBCUs to enter into the mu music industry or media-based um, programming in general. Usually those opportunities to go to HBCUs are to learn more professional um, opportunities like Doc, becoming doctors or lawyers, things of that nature. So, like I said, well intended, but um, a lot of that funding could be used to, for instance, uh, commit to student loan debt repayment assistance because 61% um, of all women of color do enter into student loan debt in order to fund their education. Um, and then also 70% enter into internships as a way to gain experience in the music business. However, 61% of those internships have been unpaid. So there's like this uneven playing field just to enter into the music industry. It's a huge barrier to entry. Um, some other key insights, 50% of 15% of women of color enter into the music industry um, with a relationship connection. So that means the majority of women of color actually have to start in the business from the ground level up, um, even though nearly half do not believe that they're, uh, they actually need to gain any kind of um, formal education to fulfill their current roles. So, so 
it's almost like you're, you're <laughs> it's almost like you're going into um, an industry. You're not necessarily knowing how to g- gain your footing there. Um, the industry is a very creative space, so you enter via like you know the grit is w- really what keeps you there. Um, the connections are what keep you there. You don't have those connections. Um, you may be one of the more educated. Um, you may be one of the least connected. Um, but in order for you to restore any kind of balance, there needs to be some reconciliation there to make it a little bit easier for people to stay in this uh, in this business, which is a privilege to be in. Absolutely. I agree. It's a huge privilege to get to be in music. Now, I want to ask you a quick question about maybe women who are later in their career, if they're starting a family or if they have other caretaking or um, just, you know, personal obligations that they need to attend to. What kind of response did you get from your survey um, respondents about their special or unique needs in that realm once they've reached that sort of mid-tier or more advanced stage of their careers? Right. And so the, one of the things that we have to consider or recognize is that this is an industry that really, it's a young industry, meaning it caters more to the people that don't necessarily have families. And I can say, based off of the research, most women of color are not, um, they don't have a significant other. The majority of them do not have children. Um, and I think that speaks a lot more to the culture of be, the music industry itself. A lot of people, this is for a lot of people, this is a 24 hour job. You don't get to turn it off when you go home. You have late nights in the studio. Your, you know, your 40 hour job quickly becomes a 50, 60 hour um, job simply because uh, this is a creative space. And so for a lot of people, you know, there's a balance that's not being had. Um, and then the study also showed that the majority of women of color feel like the responsibility of raising children falls on them specifically and not their partners. So if you're having to balance the family structure and, and unit and also carry a career, you know, that could, that could lead to some um, challenges <laughs> um, and also lead to the reason why most women of color are not having children or not being in, um, you know, not being in relationships. Um, this is an industry that you can find yourself, uh, you know, having a, a financial stability. And so a lot of women of color who have reported that they're the breadwinners of the relationship, uh, a good portion of them actually have felt like that has created some kind of um, uh discourse within their relationship and that speaks more about the culture of when women are investing in their careers you know uh, where we are as a society in um, allowing women to have more agency over their choices Um, and especially when it comes to gender roles specifically so there's a lot of things that um, this study shows in terms of family dynamics, specifically within the the women of color and diverse uh, groups of people um, that I think could be, we we should definitely take a look into and see if there's any ways that we can make that a little bit easier. Um, 2020 has allowed a lot of people to um, really tap into 
what they can uh, contribute to a gig economy. Um, and so a lot of people are starting to lean into that independence, that um, sense of uh, autonomy and independence um, and what they can bring to the table outside of their career. Um, and so maybe investing in the technical skills, the business operation side will help more women of color um, create uh, an opportunity for advancement financially, and that can help them to invest in things like uh, nanny or home t home caring that can help offset some of that family uh, responsibility. That's a great point, and thank you so much for exploring that one with us. Um, as you were looking through the results of these interviews and the data you were gathering, was there anything you learned that surprised you? And some of these things are, it's great to have the data and to get granular about what exactly is going on in women's lives and the uh, women of color's lives in the music industry. Was there anything that really stuck out? And you're like, wow, I never knew that. Well, yeah, uh, there was nearly a quarter uh, of women of color have never been promoted. What? So that That's might... insane. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I know. You imagine, like, so this is a business, again, it's about relationships. And if you're not having, uh, if you're not having frequent meetings with your supervisor, um, and just to back that data up, um, about 40%, 46%, nearly half of women of color hardly ever receive formal feedback on their work. So the opportunity for advancement and promotion is not necessarily there. Um, in terms of mentorship, you know, not only is it an opportunity for someone to uh, lean on um, someone who's more experienced for support and advice, but people tend to promote those who remind them of themselves. And so if you don't have a connection with someone, whether it's culturally, whether it's just by way of, you know, where you live or you know, what your educational background, what your economic status is, if you don't have that connection, you you typically don't offer your mentorship to people that don't um, connect with where you are in that way. So I would say that one of the things that I would implore the music industry to do is just to be more intentional about having more frequent meetings, especially with people who you may not uh, have a similar background with, but it's the work that matters, right? It's the effort, um, it's the business opportunity that that person brings to the table that warrants them to have the access that their white or male counterparts might have. Well, to piggyback off that, it's such a great opportunity to get to know someone who you may have a lot in common with, but you may not understand exactly where those commonalities lie. And it's a, a you know, someone who is uh, very curious about other people all the time. That to me seems like a desperately missed opportunity to really get to know uh, your, your, the people you're supervising that you're working with and perhaps improve uh, either their performance, the performance of your whole team, um, and just like the general culture and ability to have fun together, you know, for lack of a better exactly. way to put it. <laughs> exactly. I mean, not just from a personal standpoint, you know, we obviously want to expand our social social circles and we don't want to live in a bubble, but just on an economic, from an economic point of view, um, when you have the top selling genres of uh, hip hop, rap, Latin music uh, being the most listened to, 
you want to empower the people from those communities to drive the narrative so that they're represented more accurately. Um, mm -hmm. Because what happens is there's this um, only 6% unequivocally believe the media portrays women of color in a positive light. You know, we uh, we can miss each other if if there's this huge like scum of of stereotypes and images and expectations between us. We can't you can't see the person in front of you adequately exactly. or accurately, and so you kind of pigeonhole them um, because you That's just exactly it. It, yeah. And bias, That's exactly it. you know, we're humans. We're lazy. You know, bias helps us cognitively in certain ways, but it also screws us when it comes to finding the relationships we really need to have with each other. So, not to get too woo it about it. Subconscious, <laughs> it's a subconscious bias most of the time. Mm -hmm. You know, um, like I said. You know, I think in general, women um, are often told that they're incompetent just by way of their gender. It's not even, um, it's not a valid point, but it, it moves out. And so um, with women of color being some of the more educated um, people in the business, uh, the fact that their uh, competence is being questioned or they're often having to, uh, like I said, combat um stereotypes or microaggressions or uh, gaslighting um, as a way for them to humble themselves in the workplace, you know, that can pre prevent them from advocating for themselves when they know they are due for a promotion or when they know they have to speak up for themselves in the boardroom. Um, yeah, speaking um, up is always a very, very fraught moment um, that can lead to repercussions that sometimes are extremely negative for someone's career. Exactly, exactly. And it starts with how you feel about yourself. You know, you can put in all the work and the effort. Um, the study that I'm conducting this year, the survey expands beyond just the surface level and actually goes into, have you ever been discredited for your work? Um, has anyone ever, you know, taken ownership of what you've done? Um, you know, how, how much how many hours are you putting into your work? You know, these are some of the things that I hear just from the experiences on the podcast where people are like long, long nights, you know, long projects. Um, most rooms that they enter into, even if they are in a leadership position, people assume that they're not. And so they're having to overassert themselves a lot just for the same respect. Um, and those are just touching the surface. <laughs> That's just touching the surface of the experiences that I've been told. So, You've done a lot of great work bringing all this together in a really coherent way that's easy to understand and that's backed up with a lot of great insights, both in terms of data and anecdotes or, or accounts. Can you tell me a bit about how you hope people will use these insights? You know, what's been... What's really hard for people to who are calling the shots in the music business to hear and embrace, but you know what should we what should we do about these problems? Because it would be really good to do something. Right, <laughs> it right. needs to be addressed. No, I think mean, I think that the music industry right now is doing all, a great job at just creating more spaces for conversations like this. Um, five ten years ago, this probably would not be a focus. Um, the industry is very much focused on the bottom line, and so it has to make sense. And what we realize, because of where we are um, in terms of the listeners and the audience and what they're choosing to listen to, 
industry is responding in kind by saying, well, okay, in order for us to increase our bottom lines, we need to start listening to people from from these diverse groups because that is their lived experience. And, um, you know, I speak about this uh, case study on AI artists uh, falling very short of expectations because first there wasn't necessarily a um, well thought out rollout strategy, but also because the people that were creating this AI artist were not were unaware of cultural sensitivities, and so it affected them directly, this music company directly, because of their lack of investment in, in research about the group that they are creating this artist to or marketing this artist for. So. And, um, it, and it's important just for the bottom line. Absolutely. In this day and age, too, it is way less expensive to figure out how to get meaningful feedback from from different perspectives and especially from a community that might feel that, the, the, you know, the, the content edges against the stuff that they know best. Right. Mm-hmm. And it, mm-hmm. it doesn't take much in this day and age to get feedback. Um, and, you know, it's maybe it's not structured right. very easily, but. There's really, I mean, to be honest, there's no excuse for putting all so much into a project and not asking, uh, you know, a bunch of different people how they right. interpret it. Um, that's really become standard practice in publishing. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure there's still lots of stuff that does not pass muster in publishing. But um, for a lot of novelists, they will go and hire a sensitivity reader or three or four just to see and make sure that what they're writing doesn't do something that they didn't anticipate because of their own cultural perspective and background. So the music industry That's could right. use some sensitivity listeners <laughs> or viewers. For sure. For sure. And, and for what it's worth, like I said, I think we're on the precipice of change in the music business. Um, there are a lot of rooms being created specifically to challenge the status quo, but it requires that uh, people that are in leadership roles realizing that some sacrifices have to be made. Everyone can't have, um, you you have to make room in a more meaningful way. You have to allow people to enter into these senior leadership positions and allow them to have the control. And I know that's a hard thing for for people to do. And the music industry is is, uh, generally a place that is slow (laughs) to change in in a lot of ways. So, um, socially, socially um, is not an exception, um, but, you know, if you fall if you fall behind, you know, the rest of the world um, will be beyond um, this place where we're worried about uh, social constructs and the music industry will have to kind of play catch up um, to, to compete. <laughs> but that's just what it is. Yeah, because the industry thrives on cultural relevance if you become irrelevant because you have not dismantled some of these systemic problems. You're going to be left behind, as you said. That's very, very astute. Um, So let's talk a little bit about some of the concrete measures that I know you've been proposing and talking about and advocating for. Um, Specifically, I want to go back to the education point you made a few minutes ago. Uh, What kind of what kind of measures would really help uh, increase the number of young women of color who are able to get their get a strong foothold in the music business? Um, 
Well, I did mention about the student loan debt repayment assistance. I think the music companies are offering a 401k investment matching, but I think it, it requires a certain person at a financial uh, that has some sort of financial stability to get to that place uh, to begin with. So um, offering student loan debt repayment assistance is huge. Also, in, in terms of where women of color um, reside, you know, these are major metropolitan areas that are not inexpensive to live in. And so offering commuter um, benefits, um, I think, goes a long way as well. Um, pay transparency at all levels just to end that gender and wage discrimination. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I know that uh, California uh, is offering, uh, has a law in place where companies are now required to um, to offer a salary range on all their job uh, descriptions. So um, I think that'll go a long way in terms of people knowing exactly what that position is worth and so that they're not undervaluing themselves. Um, Juke Joint Foundation, which is a nonprofit organization um, I founded last year, um, is allowing uh Aspire, aspiring music business professionals from diverse backgrounds to have access to our platform um, to give them uh, to allow them to build their network because again the music industry is a relationships uh, a connection orient, oriented industry um, and we're also offering programming to them to empower them both on the financial literacy aspect but also in just in the terms of education, different roles that they're able to enter into this business, enter into this business, especially because most women of color um, primarily occupy creative roles, you know, marketing and A&R and management, um, which are some of those roles that are more performative um, and require a little bit more uh, um, time, result, time than you know, there's a less, little less work-life balance on those on that um, regard. Whereas music tech and operation, business operational roles can definitely lend itself to having a little bit more work-life balance um, and financial security. So, um, I would love to offer that kind of education to our members as well. Amazing. So we've talked a bit about how data can inform DEI initiatives, but I want to take it back to data writ large, because I know you've thought a lot about data and its role in the music mm -hmm. industry. So I'm just curious, what are some other ways you'd love to see the music business using data more? Are there some big holes in our data awareness that you see you wish you could, uh, you wish you could fill or change? Oh, well, data is such a, a large umbrella for what we call just information systems. And uh, AI is obviously the future, artificial intelligence. You know, predictive technology to determine what songs are hits based off song elements and tempo and quality. Um, AI is used to create song lyrics. It's, it's used to assist content pre pr production. So, you know, in terms of um, marketing artists, it's being used in that way. Um, and one of the challenges I see in terms of artificial intelligence is the cultural sensitivities. Um, we have to teach AI how to be more human, right? And so there's this balance between uh, the convenience of AI 
which creates a laziness and we have to be very aware of that. Um, we control it. It should not control us. And we, sh we have to make sure that there's this balance there. There is also just an intrinsic value of a live human soul <laughs> crafting, um, you know, music related things and just art in general, um, because we've, we can become more of a soulless society without, uh, if we just rely um, on AI to uh, provide all of the things that we do as humans in this industry. But um, the huge issue that we have is decentralizing data, um, especially in the music, music publishing arena. One of the most um, talked about uh, issues is that we lose the integrity of our data as it flows from one source to the other. So one of the bigger conversations is how do we maintain that integrity outside of just like main, um, uh, streamlining our own internal workflows and making sure that the data is consistent? Um, how do we make sure that as it's being, um, as it travels from the PROs to the CMOs and our uh, our third-party license licensors. Um, how do we maintain that data? Um, and so decentralizing blockchain is something I think could really answer the, um, those questions. However, obviously laws and regulation, the development around it, um, and catching up quickly are really big. Uh, drivers as to why a lot, a lot of the industry is not using blockchain um, at the moment. Uh, specifically, copyright laws have been caught up to to the blockchain. Um, I was reading an article recently about songs um, being distributed as NFTs, and I'm like, that sounds really amazing. You know, um, to be able to um, have access to a song in, on the web within the Web3 community at blockchain. Um, I think it, it would be a value, val, excuse me, valuable way um, to maintain uh, the integrity of that NFT itself. But we need to make sure that the copyright laws are in place um, before we can make that a, a larger uh, distribution avenue for, for artists. So um, the, the industry is moving in a, in, a, in a way towards technology. I see a lot of these... Um, major music companies investing in AI, investing in blockchain in different ways, um, investing in um, decentralized data, but it's not moving fast enough on the, on the uh, regulation side. Um, so um, I'm optimistic, uh, obviously, because this, I'm in the tech space and I would love to develop more in the Web3 community, um, but we have a long way to go. Yeah, and it's been interesting to see how quickly people have started talking about things like metadata standards for NFTs, etc. You know, it, it, yeah. it's exciting that people are jumping on this so quickly, but I don't think anything's been settled yet. And it's like we're we're we really need to get some of these things hammered out before we try to, um, you know, move everything over or at least have like a really robust uh, part of the industry where all data is being conveyed in this way. Um, it's kind of kind of terrifying, actually, to think of all the different ways you could permanently encode this data in a you know on right. on, on, on right. the blockchain. Um, yeah, so that's something to make um, publishing data experts um, start to wake up in the middle of the night and 
you know, in a cold sweat. Uh, so <laughs> as if they're not already. <laughs> I know, as if they're not up half the night going, oh my gosh, what about that? Anyway, um, you know, we'll, we'll try to leave that nightmare aside. My apologies to everyone in music publishing who um, may be <laughs> triggered by this conversation. <laughs> anyway, right, all right. right. So um, we we'll exactly, exactly. Deep breath, everybody. All right. So. Um, the decentralization conversation makes me think about the changing power dynamics between artists mm. and sort of the, for lack of a better word, the legacy players. So the people who used to be gatekeepers or the um, bankrollers of the industry who now have a very different role to play. Um, you know, we have a long way to go before we completely recalibrate the dynamics of our industry to perhaps a place where it feels like we've reached an equitable moment. Um, but mm -hmm. I wanted to hear your thoughts a little bit, Janisha, about where you're seeing the most prog progress when it comes to artists controlling their work, having that kind of say that helps them really be mm -hmm. do, do everything they need to do, both creatively and um, uh, in, as a business. I think that's where it starts and ends also is the fact that artists have to consider themselves a business now. You know, they really have to think of themselves as an enterprise, not just the creative, um, because the industry profits from their lack of knowledge about the operations. And to be, to be frank, um, there are so many platforms that allow the artists to maintain their rights, to maintain uh, their royalties, um, and they can tap into more transparent uh, systems. Um, and so there's no excuse <laughs> for them not to look at themselves as business entities on their own. Um, but, you know, you know, the larger the artists, the more it requires for them to build a team that can execute on their behalf. Um, still, you know, even myself as a, as a business owner, um, as much as I have a team around me to execute services, it's on me to make sure that I'm not being taken advantage of by my team. Um, so just an understanding of the education behind music business, that's honestly how most um, artists are being taken advantage of is their lack of knowledge. So reading up um, on the new technologies, reading up on the new platforms for distribution, uh, reading up on new marketing strategies, being ahead of of those things as an artist, I think is where they will start to see themselves become more successful and relying on their team to execute, but not necessarily be the end all be all on the movement of their projects. Um, I think a lot of artists right now, I'm just gonna say, I feel that they're lazy, <laughs> you know, I think, because of the trend of going viral at any moment or being invited to a tour with a major artist then gets them the hype that they feel translates into real numbers when it doesn't. Um, the idea of followers and being real fans when it's not, those are the kind of, dis that's the kind of disconnect that happens when you don't have a formal education about the business side and you're only looking at the marketing. Um, it, it becomes like, you know, it's, they're not driving their own seat. They're just spectators <laughs> in the, in the business. So they need to take a little bit more ownership themselves. I think. It, it's, it's hard, I think to resist the sort of romance of the, of scale that is, 
part of working with platforms like social media platforms, etc. I think it's easy oh, yeah. for people to get, like you said, complacent or feel like, well, it's just like, you know, like I'm in a casino. Right? <laughs> I'm going to just mm-hmm. put all my mm-hmm. tracks on this number and hope the wheel lands there and I go viral or somebody notices me or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So what do you see as an alternative to that more, um, you know, gambly approach? Uh, what I see as an alternative is, well, a system that is centralized, um, where an artist can have access to um, a marketplace, let's just say, of, of executive talent who are ex- experts at what they do, um, and then having a transparent system where they can manage the flow of not only information, but how their projects are executed. Um, and that allows them to manage themselves as a business um, instead of just being spectators in the development of their craft. That's, that's such good advice. And, um, definitely, (laughs) definitely it's good to change your perspective as a creative person and not look to scale and really keep your eyes on what it, you know, what it means, like the connections you want to make, right. With, with whomever, whether it's like with somebody who can help you with your business or with somebody who responds to what you're putting out there in the world. Definitely. Um, the tools are available. I think, uh, the artist that is on ahead of the curve are the ones who understand that they need to invest in themselves. Um, and they're, already putting in the work um, and they're not just waiting for the opportunities to fall into their laps. Um, Their ambition as well as their talent gets them into the rooms and surrounded by people who can take their vision and execute it. Fantastic. So we've talked a little bit before this podcast about a more utopian perspective on the music business and kind of imagining the future we'd like to see. So if I can, uh, if you can humor me for a second, Janisha, and maybe go to this sort of future paradise uh, where there is a lot more equality, equity, and power in the hands of people who have not had it, what would our business look like? What would it sound like? What kind of things do you envision that you hope come to fruition someday? I would hope that in the future, um, we would have a society that the music more accurately represents um, where we are as a, as a human race. Um, we can be a little bit more connected. I, I think what uh, the pandemic showed us is that we're all in this together and that one individual's choice actually does impact um, all of us. It becomes a ripple effect, actually. Um, and so while we're moving into this more unified uh, this more unified place as a society, I would hope that the music industry uh, broadly accepts business models that are more interconnected and um, and streamlined uh, consistent flow of data from one source to the other artists having more of a say about the control of their music, where it gets placed, how it's distributed. Um, how what the messaging is when it when they're connecting to their audiences how they want to be marketed um, being able to an executives being able to show up authentically um, they can 
you know, use their knowledge about their experiences and apply it to uh, the bro broader uh, global society instead of, you know, waiting for um, direction from a supervisor to tell them what direction to go. They have the autonomy to do it. Um, that is a utopian place. <laughs> I know we have a long way to go before we enter into that that place, but I do feel like we're uh, the technology is actually driving this um, more interconnected society. Um, and I think you know the result of us all having experienced um, you know the the pandemic where all of us were shut down. <laughs> the music community. Uh, under underwent a lot of um, changes during that time, you know, streaming numbers going way up, you know, new platforms being offered to communities. I mean, TikTok is a result of, the success of TikTok is a result of the pandemic directly. Um, I think because of that, we have to be mindful of uh, the way that our business models have been working up until recently have, have not really been working to everyone's benefit. That's a really great insight. And thanks for that little exercise of imagination. You know, if we can't, if we can't imagine it, how can we ever get there? So thanks right. for, thanks for going down that road with me. Well, Janisha, it's been so wonderful to talk with you. Um, thank you for bringing everything that you brought to the table today. And it's been amazing to have you on Music Tectonics. Thank you so much for the invitation, and I really appreciate the, the opportunity to speak about the data research, and uh, I wish everyone all the best of luck in 2023. Thanks for listening to Music Tectonics. If you like what you hear, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. We have new episodes for you every week. Did you know? You can dig deeper into all our episodes with the show notes at musictectonics.com. While you're there, look for the latest about our annual conference, sign up for our newsletter to get updates, or get the Music Tectonics app for music tech news. Everything we do explores seismic shifts that shake up music and technology the way the Earth's tectonic plates cause quakes and make mountains. Connect with Music Tectonics on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and find me, Dimitri Vitsa, if you can spell it, on LinkedIn. Bye-bye! You're listening to Music Tectonics.